Thank you, Wes. We give the fifth Sunday. There's only four of them every year where there's a fifth Sunday in the month, so we basically are giving a break to the children care, to the children workers, the workers of children's ministry. So, And we think it's a good opportunity to have the first through sixth graders sit in here and learn how to sit still uh, for 45 minutes. I know it's not easy, and so if they move around, don't freak out. It's okay. You know, just pop them. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I meant love them. Poppingly. <clears throat> okay, so we're in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, and we're looking at verses 10 through 18. So if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles. Turn to page 1022. That will bring you to our text this morning. So, I titled this, The Mark of a True Christian, Love for One Another. And we have two points, but we're not even going to get through the first point this morning. So, in order to keep, keep to time, I'm going to really, it's going to be a lot of introduction and review, a little bit of review. And then we'll begin to get into the first point, but you're going to have to come back next week. Hopefully, I think I can finish up the first and second point next week. So it's another two-parter. So I'd encourage you, be consistent in your attendance so that you can get the full message. Some of the application stuff will come next week from this message. Now, when I was studying this text that we're going to read here in a moment, I was reminded of this book that Allie brought with her on our last vacation, I believe on our last vacation together, the book was titled The Devil in Pew Number 7. Have any of you heard of that book, The Devil in Pew Number 7? Not very many of you? Okay. Well, it's a fascinating read, and it's one of those books where you have a hard time putting it down until you get to the end because you want to know where how this thing ends. And she was reading it on her vacation, and, and the things that she was telling me about the book I kind of, she drew me in, and so then I kind of read it through her eyes. She would share all these things with me. But it's, a true, it's based on a true story, and primarily it's about this pastor who took, and that's why I was very interested in it, this pastor who took on a congregation in the sense that he became their pastor. And there was a man there who was an elder, a leader in the church, and kind of ran the church, really, took care of the finances, kind of had a lot of control and power. But he was an elder, and an elder is someone, that means a shepherd. It's someone who's supposed to be a man of God. Well, the elder and the pastor, really the elder didn't like the pastor. That was the bottom line. And as the elder began, as the pastor began to to preach and to try to make this a more biblical church, the elder rejected that and began to do terrible and awful things to this pastor to get him to go away. So he would do stuff like, you know, the second that the pastor was towards the end of his sermon and going over. You don't know anything about that, but sometimes pastors go over their allotted time. You know, he would begin, he would stand up and, you know, do this, or he would (coughs) cough real loud. And that was the minor stuff that he did. He actually had some power in town, too, because of his money or business or something like that, and began to have some of his people 
do terrible things like set off bombs near their house, explosives. He would park in front of their house and just stare at them or stand out. He lived actually, I think, across the street from them, so he would just stare at them very awkwardly. And there were many things like that that this man, the devil in pew number seven, as they refer to him, uh, did to this, this pastor. This is supposedly a Christian. And what it eventually led to was he began slandering the pastor and began telling some people that, suggesting that the pastor was having an affair with some woman in the church. Well, this couple in the church was having marital problems, and as pastors often do, they were, they were going to have, give counsel to this poor woman. The husband was a drunk, and there's just a lot of stuff going on. So this elder had through slander and gossip, had convinced this drunken man that the pastor was having an affair with his wife, and that's why he was meeting with her. But that wasn't it at all. They were meeting to, to give him counsel. So in a drunken rage one day, he, he bust into their home. His whole, his whole family's there. His, the wife is there. And he shoots, not his wife, but he shoots the pastor and his wife. And so his wife dies, and his pa- the pastor is forever, forever ruined by this event. And the story is not so much about that shooter. That shooter later, he went to jail, and he later went on to repent and became a Christian. But I don't even know what actually happened to the devil in pew number seven, this elder who basically ruled and reigned in this church and, and had such disgusting hate uh, for this pastor. One of the quotes from the book is, when the Lord gets ready for me, this is the pastor speaking, he says, when the Lord gets ready for me to leave this church, he won't send the message by the devil. And all that's reflecting is, he recognized that this guy who claimed to be a Christian, and not just any Christian, but an elevated, in a sense, elder in the church, someone that people should be able to look up to as what it means to be a Christian, he, he knew he was not a Christian, and he knew really that he was of the devil. And so he saw it as a challenge and continued to stand strong, believing that there was God's will for him to stay there. I probably would have made some different decisions based on everything that happens in the book. I probably would have taken my family away, but, but he didn't, and that's what ended up happening. Just a tragic, a very tragic story. He says also in the book, they are not Christian people. I know who they are. And he's talking about not only this man, but the people that were involved with this man. I know who they are. I know they are violent, mean-spirited people. I will only leave this church if it is the Lord's will. And if it's the enemy's will for us to leave, then it is God's will for us to stay. So that type of thinking uh, really kept him there. Anyway, as I was reading 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, that book, that story, a real story, a story that has actually played out over and over again in history and still is, maybe not as serious as that, but it's still going on today. Uh, that all came to my mind. So in that context, let's, let's read First John 3, 10 through 18, and then we're going to begin to dive into this passage this morning. Just begin. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 10. And I, I know that I finished in verse 10 last week, but verse 10 is the transition from the section we were in into this new section, okay? So here it is. By this, John says, it is evident, it is clear, it is made obvious 
Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this morning, inside of your outline, what we're going to be doing is considering, you'll see this note, we're going to consider two facts, very simple outline, very simple outline, two facts about Christians so that we understand what a child of God should really look like. The first fact that we will try to understand is true Christians are not characterized by Cain's hate. Second, true Christians are, on the flip side, characterized by Christ's love. By Christ's love. Now, this is important for me to do. I'll drink my water. No, what's important for me to do is to remind you of the context of this letter. I've, we've done this, I've done this several times, but I think every time we move into a new section, and this is a, a new section of Scripture here in John, a new concept is being dealt with. He's dealt with it before. He's talked about love of the brethren. We looked at that in chapter 2. And as we've seen, what John does is he continues to come back to the same themes over and over again and kind of drives it home in a little bit different way, a little more deeper, comes at it so that we, he really gets that point across. So here we are again, coming back to John, bringing up this issue of love and love for the brethren. But it's important that you continue to remember the context that John is saying these things in, that he's writing them in. When reading through the entire letter, if, you'll, if you would do that or if you have done that, then what becomes very clear to you as you do that is that John is concerned, he's concerned that his readers be able to discern who is and who isn't actually a Christian who is and who isn't actually a Christian, regardless of what they might claim. Why? Why is John concerned about that? Why does he care? Well, remember, John makes multiple references in this letter to a certain group of people who were trying to deceive the very people that John was writing to. We see that mentioned in, in chapter 2, verse 26. They're trying to deceive them. And what's unique about this particular group of people is that they were originally part of the Christian community. They were part of the church, at least outwardly. We read that in chapter 2, verse 19. But they pulled away from the church. 
The problem is, they didn't just go away. Okay, that's really the problem here. If they would have just gone away, then we wouldn't have had probably these issues that John was addressing. Rather, they continued, even though they had separated themselves from that Christian community, they continued to have a, or tried to have an influence on that Christian community. And what made it even more difficult is that these people claimed to be Christians. They claimed to know Christ. They claimed to be of God. They claimed to possess salvation. But they did not teach the pure truth about Christ, about God, or about salvation. They would mix the truth with lies. With lies. In fact, they did not only not teach the pure truth, they did not practice genuine Christianity and I would add apostolic Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, we've talked about that, but I want to remind you. Christianity is a message from the apostles of Jesus Christ, his official representatives. John is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know Christianity because the apostles have brought us the message of Jesus Christ. These other people that were originally part of the community and now have separated themselves from that community were, in a sense, in ways, certain ways, rejecting the apostolic message about Christ and about Christianity. In fact, John doesn't call them Christians that are confused. He calls them antichrist. Antichrist. In other words, those who are actually against Christ. They may say they follow Christ. They may say they are children of God. They may say they have salvation. But the truth, John says, is they are opposed to Christ. They're opposed to Him. And he, he draws attention to their deception by pointing out what they said or believed or how they behaved in ways that contradicted the very claim that they were really followers of Christ or children of God. That's what he continues to do through this letter. So you'll see, for instance, in 1 John 1, 6, and verse 8, and verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 4, and 6, and 9, and chapter 4, verse 20, you'll see this statement like this, if we, or whoever, or anyone says these things, I have fellowship with Him, I know Him, I abide in Him, I love God, but they do this, or they don't do this, or they believe this, or they don't believe this, then they are lying. That's what John is saying. They can say they love God. They can say they abide in Him. But if you don't see these things in their life, or they deny the truth about Christ, or whatever, these kind of things, then they're liars. They're liars. They're not Christians. That's what John is saying. Additionally, as we look at the context, John is saying, or wants, or desires, that his Christian readers, who are truly Christian, who he believes are Christians, he wants them to know for certain what it really looks like in belief and in behavior, in what we think and in what we do in regard to Christ and Christianity. What does it really look like when you are a child of God, when you are God's child? What does that really look like? So that 
when they hear those things and they recognize those realities in their life, okay, these Christian readers, and they go, oh, this is what it means, this is what it looks like to be a child of God, I see that in my life, then they have an assurance and a confidence that they truly are saved, that they truly are a child of God. Why is that important? Because those other people who were making claims of being Christians but living an ungodly life or living in a way that did not uh, coincide with their profession, they were telling that group, listen, we have the truth. We have salvation. Okay? So you need to follow us. You need to listen to us. And that would have caused doubts or concerns in the lives of his Christian readers. Wait a minute. Maybe we don't have the truth. Maybe we aren't really saved. And John says, no, no. You can know for sure that you're saved if you see these evidences in your life. And because we don't see them in the lives of those who are making a claim to Christianity, we can say with certainty they are not Christians. Stop listening to them as if they are the leaders of Christianity, as if they have anything to offer you a value in regard to Christ and spirituality. Additionally, I'll just add this. John did not write 1 John in order to tell his readers how to be saved. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. He's not writing 1 John to tell someone how to get saved. Rather, he's telling them what it looks like for the saved. What it looks like in their life. And he does that by providing multiple evidences or proofs that we can look at and that demonstrate whether someone is truly a Christian or not. For instance, you remember this passage? I think I titled that message, Christians Obey the Commandments of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to what John says. This is just one of those examples. And we've, we've been looking at these as we've moved through John. And by this, John says, we know, we can be certain that we have come to know Him, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. How? How can we know? If we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments. So we talked about that. This is not a life of perfection where you've, you've kept His commandments perfectly, but it's a life that you're, it demonstrates that a life is patterned as a keeper of Christ's commandments, a keeper of God's word. The Christian can know he knows Jesus because he follows Jesus, he obeys Jesus, he hears God's word and he responds in obedience. That's how you know. I mean, people give a lot of ways that they think that they know that they're a Christian, but many of them are not in the word. And often, it doesn't include the ones that are in the Word. You understand what I'm saying? He says here, this is how you know. And then he goes on to say, whoever says, now he's thinking about that group again. Whoever says, I know him, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but does not keep his commandments, John says is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I would just add to that, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again in verse 3. John doesn't say, that we come to know Him by keeping His commandments. 
That's important. He doesn't say this is the way you, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You keep his commandments and then you get to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. No. He's saying if you're a person who is keeping the commandments, what that demonstrates is you already know him. It's a consequence of knowing him. So as we continue to work through 1 John, it's, it's going to be helpful for you to, con- to remember that context. In the previous section that we spent the last couple of weeks looking at, that was in 228 through chap- chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10, John there makes it clear that the Christian, the one born of God, is the one who practices what? Do you remember? Righteousness. The Christian, the one born of God, the child of God, that's the one who practices righteousness. Again, perfectly, no, but as a pattern of life, as a direction of their life, they're the one who is interested in righteousness, love righteousness, and want their life to be modeled after righteousness. In 1 John 2.29, the last part of it, John says in this section, he says, listen, here we go again. You may be sure, you can know without a doubt, that everyone who practices righteousness, it's the pattern of their life, that is the righteousness of God, following after Him, obeying Him, they have been born of Him. Everyone, you can be sure of this. What does that mean, beloved? What's the opposite side of that truth? That means you can be sure that everyone who does not practice righteousness has not been born of him. And in fact, that's what he goes on to say because then he says in 1 John 3, chapter 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. If this is the pattern of their life, and remember we talked about sinning, so he's not talking about murderers, rapists, he would include that, certainly. But he's talking about rebellion against God. If a person continues to live in rebellion against God, and people do that as by simply rejecting Jesus Christ. If a person is rejecting Jesus Christ, I don't care if it's your grandmother who's nice and sweet, she bakes cookies, all that stuff. I said this before. I don't care. I don't care if it's your brother, your mom, your dad. I don't care. I don't care if it's your loved one. If they continue to reject Jesus Christ, they are living in sin. They are living in rebellion. Because that's what sin is against God. They won't even do the first thing, which is bow their heart and their life and their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, they are not children of God. They were created by God, but they are not children of God. They are actually children of the devil. Because just like the devil, they continue to live in rebellion against the Creator. So he says in 1 John 3, 9, It just can't be more clear. As we move through the text, it just can't be more clear. You'd have to to try to twist this for it to mean something else. 1 John 3.9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, so we looked at all this over the last couple of weeks. If you weren't here, I would encourage you strongly to go online Listen to it and access it on the table. But when we get to the end of this section, 228 to 310, verse 10 of chapter 3, John basically makes a summary statement here about the previous verses. So he's just basically summarizing everything he just said. He started off saying, listen, 
You may know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then he begins to lay out his arguments. In fact, the one who practices sin is not of God. They're actually of the devil. We know that no one born of God makes a practice of sin. He can't for God's seed. His very seed, the Spirit of God, resides or abides or remains in him. He can't keep sinning because he's been born of God. So that one, the one born of God, will practice righteousness in their life. So when you get to verse 10, he's basically summarizing that. And then he's going to transition to another way for his readers to know the distinction between those who are the children of God and those who are not, or as John says, the children of the devil. He's going he's to give them another marker, another way to know the difference. Look at 1 John 3.10 with me. I'm going to read it again. By this it is evident. So he's just summing it up. This is this, by this it is clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Listen, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. No exceptions. In John's mind, there is no Christian who continually lives in rebellion against God. That's just not possible, John is saying. It's not possible. They can say they're a Christian, but it doesn't make them one. And then he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now John is transitioning. He goes, listen, you can know for sure that someone who does not practice righteousness, they're not of God. I don't care what they say, they're not of God. By the way, nor is one who does not love his brother. They're not of God either. Now, in regard to the word brother, as I have said before, when we were looking at 1 John 2, 7 through 11, and we looked at that section there about loving your brother, in this context, listen, in this context, it is not intended to mean, brother, humanity in general, or a blood relative. Okay? It is meant to mean a fellow member of the Christian community. If you would, a brother or sister in Christ. A brother or sister in Christ, spiritually speaking. Or, as John goes on to state in verse 11, one another, one another in the Christian community. One another, other believers. John uses the phrase, love one another, four more times after he uses it here in verse 11. He'll use it in chapter 3, verse 23. He'll use it in chapter 4, verse 7, again in verse 11, again in verse 12. And then in chapter 5, let your eyes go down, look at chapter 5. Then in chapter 5, he says this, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father, everyone without exception, everyone who loves the Father, who's the Father? God. Everyone who loves God the Father loves whoever, without exception, has been born of Him. You see that? That's the context. The concept, in other words, who's, who has been born of God? Who is it? Christians. Christians are born of God. They are children of God. Whoever truly loves God, loves the children of God. And if they don't, 
something's not right. Something's not right. The concept of loving one another, then, in John, is not a a general love for all human beings, but it is a love specifically for other Christians. Now, listen, that doesn't mean, because I had somebody ask me this last time, I talked about this, and I said, love of brethren. That doesn't mean, as Christians, that, okay, so we're off the hook, we don't have to love anybody else except our Christian brothers and sisters. No, beloved, Christians are are marked by love. They've been transformed. They are even able, through the power of Christ, to love their enemies. Because that's what Christ did. Because we were His enemies. We have supernatural power through the Spirit. And that's the only way we have it. To love our enemies. To love those who even hate us and despise us. So He's... John is not saying, hey, you don't have to love anybody else, but the folk, or, you know, you don't have to love anybody outside of your Christian community. That's not what he's saying, but that's what he's focusing on right now. That's what he's talking about. He's discussing love for brothers and sisters in Christ, loving one another, those in the community. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying that? Because that is a sign, a supernatural sign of being a Christian of being a Christian. Listen, if the only sign was, listen, just love one another, in the sense that love humanity in general, or love your physical brother, if that's what John is saying, then lots of people would qualify. Do you know an unbeliever? By that I mean someone who does not follow Christ. Do you know someone who does not follow Christ, but clearly loves their family, their mom, their dad, yeah, I even know people who, who don't follow Christ, have no religion, and they appear at least outwardly on some level to even love strangers. People that are not even in their family. That's not what John, John... So John's not talking about that. If that was the qualifier, then I'd be like, oh, they must be Christian because they love their parents. Oh, they must be Christian because they love their brother or sister. Physically physical brother or sister. That's not what's going on. John is saying, listen, the mark of a Christian is they love one another in the body of Christ. People coming from all types of backgrounds, people of all different races, people of all different social economical levels, people of all different intellectual levels, people that they normally wouldn't love, people that would not gather together if it were not for Jesus Christ. People who would not go the distance for one another if it were not for Jesus Christ. I expect a brother to care for his sister in a family. That's natural. What's unnatural is a bunch of people to come together and to express that type of family love toward one another when they come from completely different worlds. That is supernatural. That is supernatural. That's why John says that is the sign. Love for one another. Because that can't happen unless the Spirit of God is residing inside of them. Do you see? That's why he's drawing that conclusion. That's why he's stating it that way. Christians, beloved, because of our common relationship with Christ, we share a unique, it is unique, mutual love for one another that the unbelieving world does not really understand nor can they express nor can they express or experience. 
The world might be able to see it, and sometimes they're drawn to it. They go, whoa, that is different. But unless they know Christ, they can't experience it personally. It is just for the children of God. So at the end of verse 10 of chapter 3, John says, and I'm going to paraphrase now. You know what paraphrase means? It just means to put it into my own words. The person who doesn't love the fellow members of the Christian community, that person is not really a child of God. They are not a true Christian regardless of what they might say. And then John expands on that very black and white statement as we look into verse 11. Let's look at it together. Now we're kind of jump, going a little bit farther in the text. So this is, this is where we're coming from. John's been giving examples one after another, how someone can know whether or not they are a child of God or they are a child of the devil. He says, listen, they practice righteousness. They don't live in sin. They don't continue to practice sin. They don't continue to live in rebellion against God. They keep the commandments of God. They, they follow after Christ. And you know what? They love their brother. They love the other Christian. And he says in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay? That's what he says. So loving one another is not some new requirement here. That's what John is saying. This is not a new requirement or some expectation that I'm, I'm just you know, dumping on you right now, that I'm going to inform the church about. That's not what's going on here. This is not new. This is the same thing that you guys heard, as Christian readers, when the gospel was originally brought to you, when the apostles proclaimed Jesus Christ to you. This is the same message that you've been hearing from the beginning and we continue to repeat that we should love one another. Loving one another and loving or loving other believers has been and always will be foundational to being a Christian. It has been that way from the very beginning. It is a core command. You understand core command? It is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It is a core command in practice. Remember that it was Jesus Himself. It was Jesus Himself who directly gave those words to who? His disciples. You remember this passage in John? Now we go back to John's Gospel. John's Gospel. In John 15, 12, this is Jesus speaking. He says, This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we're going to talk about what that means, as I have loved you. We won't get to that till next week. You love one another as I have loved you. He also said this in John 13:35. By this, by this, all people will know that you are My disciples. How, Jesus? How will people know if we are followers of you? Oh, it's simple. If you have love for one another. Do you see that? Could it be more clear? I don't, I don't think it could be. As I mentioned earlier, but it's worth repeating again in light of Jesus' command here. Remember what John says in 1 John 2, 3-4? through 4, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? How, John? How do I know if I actually have a relationship with the Lord? Well, you keep His commandments. Well, what did He command us to do? Well, several things, but it, there's a big one. Love one another. 
I mean, it's, it's simple. And whoever says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, continues to live in sin, doesn't want to practice righteousness, and does not love his brother, so fundamental to Christianity. How can that one say truly, how can they say truly they are a child of God? John's saying they can't. And then John, he doesn't stop at verse 11. He could have. He could have that could have been enough, but now he's going to drive home his point. And his, the point being the one who does not love his brother is not of God. That point, he's going to drive it home. He's going to use an illustration from Cain's life. From Cain's life. Now listen. I'm going to leave you guys basically hanging here. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to leave you hanging this morning. And I'm not going to, it's not going to be finished. You're going to be like, okay, I have questions now. And that's just the way it's going to be. Because I'm, I'm going to be out of time here. And that's what I intended. So you have to come back next week. I'm okay if you leave here with questions. And I'm not doing this so that you come back next week. But I'm telling you, I need you to come back next week so that I can give you the rest of the story. Because we're not even... I want to dive in a little bit to Cain and Abel, just in case you're not familiar. Or even if you are, just to look at that a little more closer. But let's just look at a few things this morning to get the ball running and to get your mind thinking, okay? 1 John 3.12, look at the passage. This brings us to our first point. True Christians are not characterized by Cain's hate. We're going to talk about that hate, and we're going, to, we're going to see a little more about it probably next week, but that's the point that we're working on right now. True Christians are not characterized by Cain's hate. True Christians cannot be known as haters as Cain was known as a hater, indeed a murderer. So let's see here, 1 John 3.12. John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, before I, I, like I said, before we dive further into the story of Cain, which won't happen until next week, and the verses that follow, I would like to just consider the statement right now that we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain. Okay. The New American Standard Bible, we use the English Standard Version, okay? The New American Standard Bible, and this is why it's important, translations are important. If you just pick a a translation and go, they're all the same, they're not all the same. In the sense that some are better at communicating the original documents, manuscripts, copies of the originals that we have, some are better at communicating those than others. And sometimes one translation will be better here and another translation will be better here. That's just the way it is. So I I look at several translations. But overall, I like the ESV because it's very close to the original documents and it's readable. Okay. So I do refer here this time to the New American Standard Bible. And in this case, it is closer to the original than the ESV is. It reads, starting in verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, 12, verse 12, not as Cain. Now, you see that? It's not a new sentence. It's not a new sentence. It looks like it's a new sentence in the ESV. We should not, like he stops and then he starts a new sentence. We should not be as Cain. But it's just kind of, it's one thought flowing from another that we should love one another, not as Cain, just kind of flows right together, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. In fact, the NIV will say here, do not be as Cain. See, that sounds like a command to me then. 
When I look at that trend, like the NIV, even the ESV, it kind of sounds like, is he commanding us something? We should not be as Cain? Is that what's going on? And remember, who's he writing to? Christian readers? Okay, I'm confused. Are you saying Christian readers are like Cain and they should not be as Cain? See, I don't think that's the case at all. And I think I don't like the NIV's translation that says, do not be like Cain, because that sounds like a, John is telling them, don't, hey, you guys are like Cain, you shouldn't be like Cain. Let me paraphrase this. Christians, those who are truly of God, let me take this whole section and kind of help you with it. Verse 10, Christians, those who are truly of God, as he's been explaining, have been commanded to love their brother or one another, as we see in verse 11. And they do. I'm going to prove that to you in a second. And they do. They are not like Cain. Not as Cain. Who was of the devil. How can in one sentence I say, Christian, don't be like Cain, you know, knock it off, And at the same time, say Cain was of the devil, but the Christians of the child of God. Something's, that's not the case here. They are not like Cain, who was of the devil, and slaughtered his brother and treated him as nothing more than an animal. That's, that's what Cain did. And I say slaughtered, okay? I say slaughtered because the ESV says murdered. That kind of, I know that's a strong word, but it really doesn't communicate what the original word is. Murdered. It just sounds like a general. Oh, he murdered him. You know, he murdered him. The Nazbi says slew. But slaughtered is even a better word. He slaughtered his brother Abel. Why do I say that? Because the original word that's translated slew and murdered in the different Bibles was used in other ancient literature to describe what was done to animals used for the sacrifices. That's the word that they would use to talk about the butchering or the slaughtering of the animals that they would use for the sacrifice. It can mean slaughter, butcher, or cut the throat, which is how they prepared the animals for sacrifice. It's how they took their life. And John uses that word here to describe what Cain did to his brother Abel. He slaughtered, he butchered him like you would butcher an animal for a sacrifice. We're going to look at that story next week, but I just want you to have that picture in your mind. What Cain did to his brother was wrong on multiple levels. Not the least of which is that it was his own blood brother that he violently murdered. Cain could not care less. He could not care less about his brother, evidently. Obviously, he had no care, no concern, no love for his brother. He hated his brother to the point of taking his life. Now, I want to make sure, again, that you understand John's intent in bringing up Cain. John is not issuing a corrective statement here to his Christian readers. He's not saying, hey, you guys, I don't like the way that you're treating one another as Christians. I mean, don't you know that as Christians you shouldn't be like Cain? You know, that evil guy that slaughtered his brother? Rather, the context makes it clear that he is pointing out that those who profess, who say that they are children of God, who have from the beginning clearly been commanded to love 
one another, should not and cannot be at the same time people who live or acted like Cain. I mean, Cain was of the evil one. That's a a word to describe the devil. And Cain murdered his brother. If they are like Cain, in the way that they relate to their Christian brothers and sisters, there is something seriously wrong and it calls into question their profession that they are children of God. That's the point. Their claim of being a child of God is not matching up with their unloving and hateful attitude toward other children of God. He's using Cain as an illustration to show simply that those who have no love for their brother that is, love for one another in the church, indicates that they are not of God, but rather they are a child of the devil, which is what he said in verse 10. Let me show you. This is who is a child of God. This is who is a child of the devil. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, anyone who does not love his brother, they're not a child of God. They can't be like Cain and at the same time claim to be a child of God. Now, we're going to talk about that next week. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying, are you saying I, if I ever hate another Christian, I'm not a child of God? Okay, then I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that. And the reason, I'll give you one reason. I can, you'll, a lot of you will relate with me. Any of you who are married to another Christian, you probably just failed. Right? I mean, I'll give it, maybe for a year you're okay. But give it long enough. Two Christian people living in close quarters to one another. At some point, there's going to be some hate. Hopefully repented of and so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about what does he mean then by this type of life here, Cain and his hate and his murder. We're going to talk about that more next week. All I want to make clear to you is he's, he's saying, listen, those who are like Cain, they're not children of God. They have, those who have no love for their brother, they're not children of God. He's not trying to correct the behavior of hateful, loveless Christians. Really? Is that what we think here? That John's trying to, he's trying to say, hey, you hateless, loveless Christians, you shouldn't be that way. According to the Apostle John, there is no such thing as a hateful, loveless Christian. There isn't. There isn't. Remember what Jesus said. He says, you will know you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. You will know They will know, everyone will know, you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. And to further support what I am saying, just look back at the text. We're almost finished. 1 John 3, 13 through 15. Then he goes on. We're going to explain this next week a little bit more, but I really want to focus on 14. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Who's the one hating? The world. The world is hate. Who's the one receiving the hate? The Christians. They're not the ones giving the hate. They're the, the receivers of hate. So don't be surprised. We're going to talk about that next week if the world hates you. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Quickly, John says at the beginning of verse 14, we, 
meaning him and his readers, or the brothers as he referred to them in the verse 13, the verse just prior to 14. They know. He knows. What do they know? They know that they have passed out of death into life. What does that mean? What does that mean exactly? That he knows that they have passed out of death into life. Jesus made a very similar statement. It's recorded for us in John's Gospel. Jesus, John often sounds very much like Jesus. I wonder why. He's his apostle. He walked with him. He lived with him. He's repeating the words of Christ. Flip your Bibles. I want you to see it. John 5.24. Flip way back to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth Gospel. Fourth book in your New Testament. Chapter 5, verse 24. See it with your own eyes. Page 890 in those blue Bibles. Jesus again speaking. He says this. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen. The person who has passed from death to life is the same person who has present possession. They won't, they're not going to have it. They have it right now. Eternal life. It is that person who will not come into judgment. It is that person who has been saved from the wrath to come because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is that person who has been born a God. It is that person who is a child of God. It is that person who has been given the Spirit of God. And it is that person who has a new nature by which it expresses itself in love for one another. It is that person who is truly saved It is that person who is the Christian. And the original verb translated have passed, in other words, if you look at the original language, have passed in in verse 14 and also used in John 5.24, we just read it, but used in verse 14 of chapter 3 of 1 John. It was also used in ancient literature to describe someone who had migrated from one country to another. They have left this country, passed out of this country, into another country. That this verb is in the perfect tense means simply this, that this migration is a permanent one. It is a permanent one. It is a completed action that happened in the past and continues to have ongoing, enduring, and everlasting results. The Christian, beloved, hear me, the Christian, because of their relationship with Christ, I'm going to wrap it all together for you. The Christian, because of their relationship with Christ, has passed out of the country of spiritual death or separation from God, and they have migrated into the country of spiritual life or permanent union with God. They have left that old country that abides in death, and they have entered into the new country that is life in God. They are no longer God's enemies, but they are His beloved children. They have been reconciled to God through faith in the loving and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Those are the people who have passed from death into life. They are no longer separated from their Creator. They have been brought together, reconciled with their Creator 
because of Jesus Christ and their faith in Him. And that is incredible truth. But how does John know that his readers have passed out of death and into life? How does he already know that for sure? How can he know that without... Because that whole thing I just explained to you is all spiritual in nature. Right? For me to pass out of the the realm of death into the realm of life is something that happens in the spiritual realm. So how do I know that actually happened? What does he say? In verse 14, look back. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. What does he say? By this, We, we know, he says, we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because, because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. It's a current reality. We know that that happened. We know we are children of God. Why? Because we love the brothers. He doesn't... So. If he's talking about Cain up here, he's not saying, hey, you guys don't love the brothers and you need to stop acting like Cain. That would contradict the thing he says two verses later. Three verses later in 14, he says, listen, we're not like them, those who claim to be children of God, but practice sin, refuse to practice righteousness, don't obey the commands of Christ, and don't love the brothers. We are not like them. They still abide in death. I don't care what they say, they live in death. We are children of God and I know that we have passed from death into life because we can see the manifestation of love in our lives towards our other Christian brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. So he's, he's already saying, hey, Ivic, not only am I a participant in this, we but he's seen it in the life of the church so he can make that bold statement. That's why throughout the whole letter he continues to to say, you're children of God, you know the Father, you have a relationship with Him, you truly are born again. And I know these things for these reasons. And here's one of them. We love the brothers. I heard it again this morning. It drives me crazy. I was watching some channel. I'll close with this. It says... The person made this statement. You're a Christian if you believe Jesus died for your sins and rose again on the third day. That's it. You're a Christian. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again on the third day. Is that, a, is that it? So I, I can do whatever I want. I can hate my brothers and sisters. I can live in a moral life. I can rebel against God. I can see no evidences of a supernatural transaction in my life. But because I say I believe in Jesus and that he rose again the third day, I know I'm saved. Beloved, you won't find that. And John is clearly communicating the very opposite. You will know that you are saved because of these things. You can't have God move into your life. You can't have his spirit abiding in you and not be impacted in a real way. And you can't tell me, John says, that you can hate your brother Just like Cain, he had no love for his brother. He murdered his brother. You can't tell me you're going to live like that and then at the same time say, oh, I'm a child of God, even though I hate his children. Uh Uh-uh. Let's pray this morning. You have to come back next week.
as we really begin to pour through this. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, we just pray that our minds would continually be transformed by it. Uh, Father, we haven't really got into how we might apply this to our particular situation, our, our current context, our life. Father, I pray, though, that we would just begin to think about these things. Think about these realities. Think about what John is saying. Especially, Father, as we begin to look at, not only are we, not, only are we not characterized by Cain's hate, but Christians are to be characterized by Christ's love. Oh, my goodness. When we begin to think about that, we sing about God's love. We sing about Christ's love. It is incredible. It is unbelievable. And that is the love that we are to be characterized by for one another. And here's the truth. We don't have it in us naturally. We can only love like this. And we will only not hate and kill one another if we truly have been born of you, Father. We need a supernatural transaction to take place. For those that are here, as we continue to move through this book, and they recognize that none of the things that should be true of their life as a Christian, they don't have any of those things. They don't see any of those evidences. Father, would you help them come to grips with the reality then that they are not saved? That they should stop fooling themselves and trying to fool one another. That, Father, they would, they would come to grips with that and they would see the seriousness of that and they would bow their knee truly for the first time to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, for those of us who see these things, and we do see them to some degree, we see them being manifested in our life as we have a desire for righteousness, as a desire to follow after your word, a, a love that it's hard to explain, a love for one another, a true love. Wow, those are exciting things for the Christian because what they point to is your seed, God, abides in us. We are your children. We have been saved. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.